This morning we are continuing in 1 Peter chapter 2. The title of this series that we're going to begin is Growing Together as God's Spiritual House. Growing Together as God's Spiritual House. And I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. Follow along as I read our passage for us. Peter says this, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A building company in New Zealand published an article titled, Importance of Strong Foundations for Buildings. And here's what this article said. It said this, What is the most important part of any building or home? Many people often think that the roof is an important part of their building. While a roof is a component that protects people, a foundation is what supports your construction and gives strength to your building. This morning, we're going to be talking about a foundation. A foundation. Not the foundation of a building or a foundation of your home, but the foundation of God's spiritual house. And as we come to this passage here before us this morning, we, we see a shift in Peter's thinking. There's a, a shift away from the picture of the family to a picture of a building or of a house. If you remember back in chapter 1, Peter uses familial language there. In verse 14, he says, children. In verse 17, he says, father. In verse 22, he speaks of loving the brethren. Verse 23, he speaks of the new birth. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, he even speaks of babies. And you see this familial language that, that Peter is using there. But now Peter's language changes. It changes and he, he moves on from the familial language and seeing the church as those who have been 
born into the same family, the family of God, to now talking about being a part of the same building or the same house. And specifically here, the same spiritual house. In fact, notice what he says there in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. Who is this spiritual house that Peter is referring to? This is the church. It's the church. Each one of us is a living stone. And as living stones, together we are being built up. This is being done collectively. Is we are those who make up the house or the building. You and I are not lone bricks or stones who are growing all by ourselves without any other stones around us. But we do this collectively as a spiritual house, as a spiritual building. And so that is the picture that that Peter draws on as he continues here in chapter 2. And as we work our way through this passage, we're going to unpack what that looks like And what it means for you and I to be living stones who belong to God's spiritual house. What does it mean for you and I to be spiritual or living stones who belong to God's spiritual house? Let's look at our first point, point number one this morning, and what we will call the foundation for those in God's spiritual house. The foundation for those in God's spiritual house. Notice what Peter says there in verse 4. He says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, if you remember back up in verse 3, we talked about how Peter drew upon David's words from Psalm 34 and verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And remember what he says back there in verse 3. He says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter there is drawing upon the words from David in Psalm 34 and verse 8. And in the Greek, the word that Peter uses for Lord there in verse 3, you see that at the end of verse 3, that word Lord In the Greek, the word that Peter uses there is the word kurios. Kurios. Kurios means Lord. But in the Hebrew, if we were to go to Psalm 34 and verse 8 and read the words of David there, which says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. The word for Lord that David uses there is the word Yahweh. Yahweh. And so, who is Peter referring to? In verse 3 there, where he says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, who is Peter referring to there? He's referring to Yahweh. Yahweh is the Lord who has shown kindness to those who have been born again. It's Yahweh who has done But notice who Yahweh is in verse 4. Peter says, and coming to Him. And we would ask, well, who is Him? 
Who is this him that you're talking about here, Peter? Well, the rest of the verse identifies who the him is. He says this him is the living stone which has been rejected by men. Who is that? Who is that that Peter is specifically referring to here? This is Christ. This is Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying here? That Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. He is the one in whom Peter is referring to here. And it is Him. It is Christ in whom we have tasted the kindness of the one who has saved us. Now, notice Peter says there, and coming to Him. Oftentimes we hear in evangelistic preaching, come to Him, right? Come to Christ. The the preacher will stand up and they'll call the congregation or whoever's out there, come to Christ, come to Him, come and be saved. We even hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's a call to come to Christ for salvation. That's what that call is. But in our passage, Peter has already established our salvation back in verse 3 where he said, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, or another way that we could say it is, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Since you have tasted that Christ is good, that He is the Redeemer, that He is the Savior, and you have trusted in Him. Since you have done that, you've been saved. Which means we've already come to Him, right? We have already, in salvation, come to Christ. And that's what Peter is saying here to these readers who are reading this letter. You have already come to Him. You have come to Christ because you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You have been saved. And so, when Peter says here in verse 4, and coming to him, he's not speaking here of an initial salvation. He's not speaking here of coming to Christ to be saved. So what is he talking about then? And coming to him. He's talking about the voluntary, repeated, habitual coming to Christ for sustenance and fellowship. That Christ is the one in whom we always run to. This is what a true born-again believer does. He continues to come to Christ. We should be daily coming to Christ. We don't just come to Christ at the moment of of our salvation and think then, well, we're good to go. I'm saved. Don't need Christ anymore. Don't need to come to Him for strength, for nourishment for sustenance in my life. No, we, we continue to come to Him. This here, it's a continual act that we do as believers, that we continue to come to Christ knowing that He is the one that I must always be running back to. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16. Where he says this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
draw near to Christ. In Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the act of continually coming to and drawing near to Christ. There's an intimate relationship that true believers have with Christ. As we are always continually wanting to go to Christ and we continue to come to Him again and again and again. That's what Peter has in mind here. This is not initial salvation, but this is what a true believer continues to do throughout their life. We continue to come to Him. Why? Well, because Peter tells us here, he says, as to a living stone. Why do we come to Christ? We come to Christ because He is living. He is alive. He is a living Savior. Now, oftentimes when we think of a stone, we don't think of something living, right? You look at a stone, what do you think of? dead just there it is right you don't think of life in fact we will call something that is dead that thing is stone dead it's stone dead something that is stone dead is lifeless but peter tells us here of a living stone that the stone is full of life because christ is full of life Notice, this is interesting here, this is the third time that Peter uses this word living. We're only into chapter 2 here, and this is the third time. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3, he told us that we have been born again to a living hope. And then in chapter 1 and verse 23, he told us that the Word of God is living and enduring. And now Peter tells us of Christ, who is the living stone. Life. He wants us to understand that. But he is not, that is Christ, is not just the living stone because he gives life and is alive today, but he is the one who has come back to life from the dead. That's what Peter has in mind here. That's what he's talking about. The one who is the living stone is the one who was dead, but who has come back to life. And he's living today. What is Peter referring to here when he talks about Christ as the living stone? He's referring to the resurrection of Christ. How do we know this? Well, look at how Peter describes Christ in the next part of verse 4. What does he say there? He says to us about Christ that he has been rejected by men. He has been rejected by men. Well, what did this rejection look like? Was it just the denial of the Jews as Jesus being the Messiah? Is that what the rejection is? That they just rejected Jesus saying, ah, no, 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 we don't believe that he is the Messiah. Was it just their mockery of him when he claimed to be the Son of God? Is that the rejection that Peter's talking about here? The answer to that is no. How did the Jews show the rejection of Christ? What did they do? They crucified Him. 
That was their rejection. They crucified him. In fact, hold your finger here in 1 Peter and turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, this is Peter and John's arrest for preaching the resurrection of Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were preaching the resurrection. John and Peter were. And they get arrested. And then the next day after their arrest, they had to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, who are the rulers of the Jews. The Sanhedrin are. And notice what it says in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, that is the Sanhedrin, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Notice verse 11. He, that is Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Notice what Peter says there in verse 10. What was their rejection? What did they do? He says there in the middle of verse 10, whom you crucified. Your rejection of Christ was not just mockery of Him, was not just beating Him, slapping Him, saying that He's blaspheming because He claims to be the Son of God. That wasn't your rejection of Him. Your rejection was you put Him on a cross. He came as your Messiah. And you rejected Him by putting Him on a cross. By crucifying him. But back over in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that Jesus is not the dead stone, but he is the what? The living stone. Why is he living? Because God raised him from the dead. It's because God raised him from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Christ is a foundational doctrine for us as believers. It's foundational. In fact, the, the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our faith. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection of Christ, if He is not the living stone, if He is not alive today, if He has not been resurrected from the dead, your faith is worthless. And you're still in your sins. Headed where? To hell. You see, the resurrection is foundational. It's so important for us. It's our resurrected Christ who is the foundation of our faith and therefore the foundation of the church. Because if you don't have the resurrection of Christ, you don't have the church. 
It's so foundational. Christ, our resurrected Christ, is our foundation. And Peter uses the image of Christ being a living stone to illustrate this for us. Now, this word stone that Peter uses there in verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone. That word stone there that Peter uses is a word in the Greek that you probably haven't heard. You've probably heard these Greek words, petros or petra. I know that there was a band at one time, some Christian band named Petra. That's where they got it from. Stone. Petros means a loose stone, one that's lying on the side of the road. That's a Petros. Or, but Petra means a rock or a large rock. We talk about these words when we talk about Peter's confession of Jesus in Matthew 16, 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter confesses that. And Jesus' response then in verse 18 is, I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, that little rock, it's laying on the side of the road, you are Peter, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church, this large stone. What is it then that that the church is built upon? The confession that Christ is the Son of the living God. He's the Son of the living God. That confession, that is what the church is built upon. Not upon Peter. It's not what he's saying there. He's not saying I'm building the church upon you, Peter but upon the confession that you have just made that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we hear those two words, Petros and Petra, little rock, big rock. But Peter uses a different word here in verse 4 where he says living stone. Peter uses the Greek word lithos, lithos. And this word refers to a stone that is ready for construction. This here is a stone that is ready for construction. It's not a little rock, a little stone that's laying on the side of the road. It's not a large rock like a Petra, but this is a stone that is ready for construction. This is the word that would be used to refer to a stone when speaking of the construction of a building. You see, structures back then were commonly made of stone. It was made of stone. And this lithos, this type of stone, would not be just some random stone that you would pull out of a mountainside, but this stone would be a stone that was specifically prepared and shaped to be used in a building. It would have been chiseled and carved and sawn to be used specifically for a building. We see this oftentimes with our countertops today. If you have a granite countertop, I worked for a granite countertop company for a summer, and we would have to cut it, and you would see them cutting that with a saw. Big slabs of granite, marble and granite. They cut those things down, and they cut it down to be used specifically for your counter. They do that. That's, that's this, this lithos here. He's talking about it's specifically chiseled and carved 
and sawn down to be used specifically for a building. And what Peter is referring to here in this image of a stone is specifically one stone. One stone in that building. And that is the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone. As Peter says, down in verse 6, he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. A precious cornerstone. In fact, Peter there is is quoting from Isaiah 28. Hold your finger in 1 Peter again and turn over to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. This is a warning by Isaiah to Judah. And in Isaiah 28, verse 16, it says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. There it is. A stone. A tested stone. A costly cornerstone for what? The foundation. For the foundation. Firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. That's, that verse there is exactly what Peter is quoting back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. It's the cornerstone. Uh, that's what Peter is referring to here. You see, the cornerstone was the most important stone of all in the building back then. The most important. It set the whole foundation for the entire building. It had to be strong enough to hold up the test of the building above it as all the other stones would then be laid upon it. It had to be strong enough to hold all that up. It had to be cut and laid perfectly straight because the rest of the building was going to be built off of that one cornerstone. It was the most important stone of all. It was that stone that oriented all of the other stones and it was that one stone then that unified the entire building. It had to be laid perfectly straight. It had to be a perfect stone. There was no other stone in the whole foundation of the building more important than the cornerstone. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. You see, the, the foundation was important, but the most important part of the foundation of the building was the cornerstone. One commentator says, the idea of foundation is that of support. The idea of the chief cornerstone is that of regulation, patternhood, producing assimilation. Jesus is not only the origin, foundation, support of the church, but he gives it its shape and form. He determines the place and the office of each stone. He gives life and character to each member. That's Christ, who is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the church, the very foundation. And specifically in that foundation, he is the chief cornerstone. And that's what Peter refers to here as the stone, the lithos back in our passage. 
In fact, what's interesting is that Christ even uses this very term, lithos, to refer to himself. Turn over to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, this is a fascinating parable. It's the parable of the landowner or what some call the parable of the vineyard where Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees the parable about the slaves who were sent by the landowner to collect the produce. And there were some vine growers that rented the vineyard. And they were working there in the vineyard. And the landowner goes to collect the produce, but the vine growers who were there working in the vineyard, they beat one of the slaves in whom the landowner sent, They killed another one and they stoned a third. Then they did the same thing to another group of landowner slaves whom he sent to go collect the produce. These vine growers, they they beat them, killed them, stoned them. Then finally the landowner sends his son to go and collect the produce. He sends his son. And what did the vine growers do to the son? They killed him. They killed him. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 42 of Matthew 21. Notice what he says there. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone, this lithos, will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like the dust. Who is Jesus referring to here as the stone which the builders rejected there in verse 42? referring to himself he's referring to himself and that word stone that he uses there in verse 42 and in verse 44 is the word lithos a stone that was specifically prepared and shaped he says i am that stone i am the one In fact, Jesus says, this became the chief cornerstone. I am the chief cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22, where this was predicted. It was prophesied that Jesus would be rejected as the stone in which the builders would reject. Jesus is telling them here, he is the one who is prepared and qualified to carry out the prophetic functions of the Messiah. He was the one who could do it, who would do it. But what did they do to him? They rejected him. They rejected the stone, which is exactly what Peter tells us back in our passage. Turn back to 1 Peter 2. Notice notice Peter says there that Jesus is the living stone which has been rejected by men. He is that specially prepared stone, the one who was specifically prepared by God to carry out all of the prophetic functions of the Messiah. 
He is the one. And yet men rejected him by crucifying him. But it's not just the Jews who have rejected him. Anyone who hears the gospel and rejects the gospel has rejected the living stone. They've rejected Christ. The foundation. The cornerstone. Now, what's interesting here about this word rejected is that it means this. To reject after critical examination and testing. That word rejected there means to reject after critical examination and testing. You see, this rejection is not some kind of naive or uneducated rejection. As if they rejected Christ just because they they just don't know. These men and all men who reject Christ reject Him because in their eyes He fails to measure up to their expectations. Essentially, what they do is they become the authority. That's what the Jewish leaders did. They became the authority. We'll tell you who the Messiah is, and you're not the Messiah. We don't know specifically who He is, when He's going to come, but we look at you and we have the authority and we are rejecting you as the Messiah. They place themselves in, in the position of authority. And they are the ones who then establish themselves as the one who gets to examine Christ and make the final call on whether or not He is the Messiah. We will examine you, Jesus. That's what they're saying in their rejection of Him. What was the final verdict of these rejectors? What do they want to do with Christ? Get rid of Him. They wanted to get rid of Him. Now, think about who Peter is writing to. Who is he writing to? He's writing to believers who are being persecuted for their faith in the living stone. Who was what? Rejected. They themselves are being rejected because they trust in the living stone who was rejected by men. You think this would offer comfort to these believers? Of course it would. You think this would encourage them in the midst of their rejection? As believers, we come to the living stone, who, by the way, Peter says, he says, let me remind you, in case you forgot, he has been rejected by men. You know the very one that we always are running to? Because He is the chief cornerstone, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our lives, the foundation of the very church that we belong to. You know Him? Yeah, let me remind you. He was rejected too. Church, when you're rejected by men, remember what they did to our Savior. You're not alone. They rejected him. Jesus even tells us in John 15, 20. 
if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The world will persecute us. Why? Is it really us that they reject? No. It's our Savior in whom they rejected. And the Jews did that to Jesus. They beat Him and they mocked Him and they hung Him on a cross. But what did God do? What did God do? God raised Him from the dead. God brought Him back to life. Why? Look at the end of verse 1. Because he is choice and precious in the sight of God. God did this because Christ, the Messiah, is the choice and the precious one in his sight. You see, God made an evaluation too. While these rejectors made an evaluation of Christ and they rejected Him, God made an evaluation as well, just like these rejectors did. And God made an evaluation and He said, He is my Son. He is my choice and precious Son. Choice there means elect. He is God's chosen one to be the foundation of the church. Christ is the chosen one. And He is precious. The word precious means to be esteemed as something of considerable worth or to be valuable. When the world rejected Christ, God said, He is my choice. He is precious to me. He is the one whom I have selected to be the stone, the very foundation of the church. Remember when Jesus was baptized? Jesus was baptized and then a voice came. And it was the voice. It was God. God announced something. And what did God announce at the baptism of Jesus? Matthew 3.17 This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's my choice. He is my precious one. Even at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter was there with Christ, God spoke and He said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. He's my beloved one. You see, Christ doesn't need man's approval to be the foundation. He doesn't need man's approval to be the living stone. Because God chose Him to be that. And how did God show His approval of Christ as the Messiah? How did He show His approval of Him? He raised Him from the dead. See how important the resurrection is for us? It's foundation. God raised Jesus from the dead. And as our risen Savior, He is our foundation, the living stone He's the foundation of the church, which is the spiritual house of God. And the only way that anyone can be a part of this spiritual house is by repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. It's the only way. No one can buy their way into this house. 
No one can weasel their way in. Coming in their own way. No one can get in by good works that they've done. The only way that anyone can be a part of this spiritual house in which Christ is the chief cornerstone of is by turning from sin and trusting in Him alone. And when they do, they will continually come to Christ, as as Peter says there, and coming to Him. You are in Christ. You continue to come to Him who is the foundation, who is the living stone, the chief cornerstone. So that's our first point. Let's move on to our second point, point number two. The function, we'll call this the function of those in God's spiritual house. The function of those in God's spiritual house. And we're just going to touch on this here this morning because there's so much that is packed in here. But look at what Peter says there in verse 5. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter now turns to these believers and addresses them. He's just told them about the foundation, about the cornerstone, the living stone. But then look at what he calls them. Notice he says there in the beginning of verse 5, You also as what? Living stones. Living stones? This should blow our mind. You mean, just as Christ is the living stone, as believers in Him, we become living stones? That's right. That's right. That's what He's saying. When you come to Christ, who do you become like? You become like Him. You become like Him. You now have His unique nature through the new birth. He has imparted His life to you, to us, church. We have the very life of Christ in us. We are now living stones. Because we are in Christ, connected to Him as the living stone who has been resurrected, we are living stones who will also be resurrected to life one day. Isn't that amazing? That's our future. Just as we look back and we see what God did in Christ, in raising Him from the dead, that same promise is ours. Because we're in Him. We will be resurrected to life as living stones. And the more that we come to know Christ, the more that we then become like Him until the day that we see Him and we'll be like Him, as John says in 1 John 3, 2. Now, notice what Peter says here in verse 5. He says, you... And the word you there is a plural you, meaning all of you who reside as aliens. Remember, he's writing back in chapter 1 and verse 1 to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen believers. That's who he's writing to. And he says you, plural, you who reside as aliens. 
And while he's referring to each one of them individually, he doesn't isolate them like a bunch of stones that are all scattered around in a field. But he pictures them collectively. Notice what he says there, as a spiritual what? House. You see, all of us have been saved, yes, each individually, but as those who are individually saved, we are, to be, we are saved collectively as the church, as living stones who are a part of the spiritual household of God. That's why he says you, you plural, all of you. You are now in permanent union with one another. The moment that you were saved, you were then placed in permanent union with other brothers and sisters, other living stones who were all built upon that very foundation, that chief cornerstone, Christ. If you had a home made of stone or brick, you came home one day and you saw the bricks laying around the yard and all over your property, each individually, all alone, you would look at that and you would go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with this house. Sadly, that's how some people who call themselves Christians live their Christian life. They're like a lonely stone just laying all alone in a field. One commentator says, The Scriptures know nothing of an individual piety that is out of touch with the living body of God's people. Scripture knows none of that. This commentator is right. We've been talking about this in Equipping Hour. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation from brothers and sisters in Christ. The Christian life is not an individualistic life. It's a life that is to be lived connected to the body of Christ, connected to the local church. We're all living stones who are a part of the house of God. God's spiritual house. And Peter says here, because you are connected to the living stone, you are now individually living stones who are collectively a part of a spiritual house that is being built up. What does he mean that we're being built up as a spiritual house? Well, notice there, he's not saying that that believers are being built into a spiritual house. He doesn't say that. We're not being built into a spiritual house, but that as a spiritual house, we are being built up. All who are in Christ are a part of that building. We're united to each other. And as that spiritual house, we are being built up by God. That's why it's not good when the stone is is left all alone. That's not where it's supposed to be. Get it back on the walls. Get it back connected with the other living stones who are all connected to the chief cornerstone. 
so that God can build up his church. Now, how does this building up happen? Well, let me remind you again of Ephesians 2. In verses 19 and 20, Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints who are of God's household. Notice he says there, you're with the saints. You're together with them. The Bible never speaks of isolated Christianity. Never. We're always together. You're of God's household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's he saying here? Paul is saying Christ is the cornerstone, perfect in every way, God's choice one, whom God has established as that cornerstone to which the entire church is built from. Christ is that cornerstone. He's perfect in any way. And he establishes then that perfect foundation. Because he is perfect. But Paul tells us that the church is God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What is that? What is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that he's talking about here? The foundation of the apostles and prophets is not the works that they did, that the apostles and prophets did. It's not their personality or some kind of structure that they helped build, these apostles and prophets. What is that foundation of the apostles and prophets that Paul is referring to? It's their doctrine. It's their doctrine. It's what they taught. Their teaching. Because they taught the words of Christ, who is the cornerstone. Right? Isn't that what the apostles taught? They went out and they preached Christ. Christ and Him crucified, Paul says. They taught the very words of Christ. And isn't that what the Great Commission tells us to do? The Great Commission is not just to go spread the gospel so people can get saved. That's a part of it. But then we must teach them to observe all the things that Christ commanded us. Teach them the very words of Christ. There's the foundation. The teachings of Christ. The doctrine. Christ is the chief cornerstone and it's His teaching then that is the very foundation of the building to which the church is built up. Christ is that cornerstone. The apostles' doctrine is the foundation that is laid off of that cornerstone. Listen, that is why when you show up here, all we do is preach what? The Bible. How's this church going to grow? Not by a bunch of programs, not by a bunch of lights and rock music and this and that and all this kind of stuff. It'll grow by this. By the very Word of God. This is the foundation of it all. And it's the foundation by which God then builds His church. And we are a part of that building. As living stones. We are part of that spiritual house that God is growing. 
And we grow as we continue to come to Christ and to learn His doctrine, to learn His teaching, to learn more about Him, our Savior, our Messiah, whom we love, whom we cherish, and whom God said is His choice one and who is precious even to Him. He is the one we learn from. What is all of this for? This building and this this being built up as a spiritual house of God, what is the, the purpose of this building up by God? Notice what Peter says there next in in verse 5. He says, for a holy priesthood. What does that mean? Well, come back next week and you'll find out what that means. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, the living stone, the one in whom our entire lives is built upon. We thank you that you sent him in your perfect sovereign plan to come and to be rejected by men and to be the sacrifice for our sins. And to raise him again on the third day to life in approval of what he accomplished to save us. Lord, we're amazed at your plan. We're amazed at Christ, who is our chief cornerstone. And we thank you that you've called us to be living stones. Lord, may none of us ever separate ourselves from the church, the spiritual house of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, grow us together and grow us as we are built upon Christ and grow us as we grow by the doctrine, the teaching of your word. Father, may we be like those babies who long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow up into salvation. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done and the work that you continue to do. Lord, we pray for anyone who is here this morning who is not a living stone because they're not in the living stone. Father, I pray that you would open their hearts to see their need for a Savior, to understand that their sin has separated them from the Savior. Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance and faith and that they would trust in the living stone, Jesus Christ, and be a part of the spiritual house that you, God, are growing. And may you be glorified through it all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.